How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our little podcast. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighbourhood podcaster, and today I'm chatting with someone who has their own Wikipedia page. This guest is a member of the Order of Australia for services to paediatrics and child health, and they're the first female to win the James Cook Medal awarded by the Royal Society of New South Wales for contributions to human welfare. Today I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Elliott. How's it going, Elizabeth? Well, thanks, Kurt. Surviving with these these COVID times? Yeah, look, it's it's very difficult. It's a change of pace for me because I'm often travelling. But I'm quite enjoying working from home, which I'm doing perhaps two-thirds of the time, because uh, it's giving me a chance to catch up on work that needs to be done and a, a chance after 30 years of not spending any time in my house to, to be enjoying my house and garden. I think everyone's enjoying their house and garden a lot more now that they're somewhat stuck, not able to travel as much. Exactly. Uh, I think there are a lot of renos going on. Yeah, Bunnings. I heard the revenues of Bunnings have gone up tenfold. So into the meat of things, I just want to ask, I know this is going to sound pretty cheesy on my part, but, you know, I have to, I have to, I want to get your opinion on this. Why did you originally become a doctor? Well, funnily enough, as a child, I always said I would never become a doctor. And that's because I came from a family of doctors and people always asked, are you going to be a doctor too? And of course, as a young child, I just said, no, I could see how hard my parents, my mum and dad worked as doctors. But really, when it came to the crunch, I did better than expected in my high school certificate. I was tossing up between architecture and medicine. And I came down on the side of medicine thinking, well, I could always do architecture afterwards if I if I didn't like it. But really what swayed me, I think, was that in watching my parents and hearing about my grandparents' work as doctors, I realised that they could do something really valuable for society. So my grandfather was a doctor at Gallipoli. My other grandfather delivered Australia's first quads, the Sara quads, in a in a country town up the north coast of New South Wales. My father was a prominent obstetrician and my mother worked for many years with children with physical and and intellectual uh, handicaps. So, you know, I could see when it really came to making the choice that this was a profession that was really worthwhile and could make a difference to individuals' lives as well as to the lives of our community. Beginning your path to become a doctor, did you ever think that you'd be a member of the Order of Australia, that you'd be so respected in your field of expertise? Well, you've probably heard of the imposter syndrome, have you? That mm. actually I do sometimes look in horror at these awards and think, well, why me? I mean, there are plenty of other deserving people out there. So I don't think you work to get recognition. On the other hand, after many years of hard slog, for anyone, it's nice to get recognition, whether that's just your boss saying, you've done a really good job today, or whether it's someone saying, you know, we're going to give you an order of Australia. 
You are often referred to as a pioneer of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. How did you first get involved with FASD? Well, as a paediatrician, I was well aware of fetal alcohol syndrome, as we called it in those days, uh, when I was training and, and as a young paediatrician. When we, we seemingly used to see cases more often just in the run of the mill of the, the hospital work than we do, do today. And we had a, a doctor, Tony Lipson, who was very interested in this area and had written some papers about it. So I guess that's why it, it was evident to me. And then for, for many years, seemingly, fetal alcohol syndrome disappeared. And I suppose we all thought that that was because women had got the message and stopped drinking alcohol during pregnancy. So that was sort of my first awareness of it. And then back in 2000, uh, with Professor Carol Bauer from Perth, we started a national surveillance study to ask paediatricians to report to us whether they were seeing any cases of fetal alcohol syndrome. And to our surprise, we found that, yes, these cases were coming up in paediatricians' Uh, clinics and were being diagnosed. And that was when we wrote our first paper. And really that led to a whole series of research because from that paper, we identified that many doctors weren't aware of the condition or had forgotten about it. They didn't know how to diagnose it. They were worried about stigmatizing people through that diagnosis. And we set about really there on a series of research projects to try and describe not only the epidemiology of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome or spectrum disorder in Australia, but what women knew about alcohol in pregnancy, what doctors and other clinicians knew about how to make the diagnosis. What kinds of FASD research have you been involved in, apart from that surveillance study you just mentioned? Yeah, well, look, I've been involved in a whole range of studies. So from the epidemiological point of view, we're still running. Uh, we've recommenced, in fact, a national surveillance study with reporting through paediatricians of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Australia. And in the last five years, we've had reported to us nearly over 600 new cases. So this is a condition that hasn't gone away. I've done some very interesting population-based prevalence studies in remote Aboriginal communities in the Fitzroy Valley in Western Australia, in the Kimberley region, at the request of the Aboriginal communities. They wanted to know, was this a problem in that community? And if so, how we could address it. I've been involved in three, currently three pregnancy cohorts of uh, following women to assess how much they did drink during their pregnancy and then what the outcomes are for their children. And that's led to some really interesting work looking at epigenetic studies. That is, you know, how does the alcohol exposure in utero affect the chemical composition of the DNA and hence the expression of the genes in that unborn child. And we've also been doing some very interesting work looking at 3D imaging to, of the face to try and detect the more subtle changes that we might see that result from alcohol exposure. And then, of course, there's been a work in, in, in women to try and establish how we can better ask and document alcohol exposure and not only that how we can then advise women and support them to stop drinking during pregnancy. How does it make you feel when you're studying something like alcohol something simple that we all take for granted and you look at it and you examine how it affects the human body and how much it damages the person who drinks it and as well as the person other people who may be affected say an unborn child does it amaze you that how much we take it for granted and how much damage it can do? Yeah. Well, do you drink alcohol? 
Well, I'd sometimes. I'm not really much of a drinker, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm much of a drinker, but I do drink alcohol and mm. I do enjoy alcohol. And I think that's one of the problems is that alcohol is pervasive in our society. And, you know, some of us hopefully can moderate the amount we drink and minimise the potential for either acute or chronic harm from alcohol. But a lot of people don't have that capacity. So either they're young people who are just going as part of the peer group and drinking excessively, or they're people who have a disease, really. Uh, They have a gene which puts them at risk of drinking alcohol. There may be a family history of alcohol. Or, as many women tell us, they're drinking alcohol to hide their current disadvantage. So, for example, women in remote Aboriginal communities tell us that they drink to deal with the stress of their situation. And that situation might include overcrowding or unemployment, might include a a partner in jail, it might include domestic violence. And also in some of those Aboriginal communities, of course, it includes the pain that arises from the historic trauma of having lands taken away, being prohibited from speaking their, their local language and you know, not being treated as other citizens, being part of the stolen generation, which is when Aboriginal children, particularly what were called half-caste children, were removed forcibly from their parents without permission. So I think that coming back to your question, yes, we are astonished that still 60% of women are drinking alcohol during pregnancy in Australia. Most of them will stop once they realise they're pregnant or substantially cut down their intake. But there's a group of women who we've really got to understand why they drink. They drink because they're addicted or they've got underlying problems and environmental and other family problems that they're trying to, to hide through alcohol. So rather than shaming and blaming these women, none of whom would ever want to hurt their unborn baby, we really need to understand why are they drinking? How can we improve their situation? And how can we prevent them from drinking? But if we're seeing women who are actually drinking during pregnancy, we've got to use whatever treatments we have available to minimise the harm to the unborn child. Definitely, 100%. And I hope this podcast helps with that, alleviate some stigma people, some people may have, at least some of my listeners might have. Absolutely, because you know it's interesting stigma because doctors tell us that they're reluctant to ask pregnant women about their alcohol use. They're worried it might disrupt the doctor-patient relationship. They're worried it might upset women or make them anxious, that it might stigmatise the woman or the child. And yet women tell us they want to be asked about alcohol use in pregnancy. And more than that, they want to be advised not to drink. So, you know, often health professionals misunderstand what women want and women tell us that they want a direct, clear message advising them that alcohol may be harmful to their unborn child and supporting them to give up alcohol during pregnancy. Dr Elliot, you've done a lot of work, especially on the medical side of things, but you also have done a lot of work advocating for people with FASD and people who care for people with FASD. How did you get into this this role of advocating for people with FASD? Well, it's an interesting topic. I've just read a paper about sort of advocacy in medical professionals because I had a lot to do with the inquiry into children in immigration detention in Australia, which included visiting Christmas Island uh, with the Human Rights Commission and interviewing literally hundreds of families with children. And we were accused at that stage of, you know, we were told that 
we shouldn't be advocates, we, we should be health professionals. But I think it's very difficult to separate those two roles and every health professional is an advocate at a personal level for their patient. And I've just always felt that we've got to give a voice to children, adults and, and their families who might not otherwise have a voice. And many of the families that we see with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder are disadvantaged in one way or another. So they may be socioeconomically disadvantaged. They may be single parents. They may be women who've got a long-term history of alcohol use disorder. They may be living in remote Aboriginal communities. So we really do need to act as an advocate for them. So I think that's at the personal level. At the community level, I think doctors can also be very strong advocates um, and other clinicians. And a good example of that, I think, is the labelling, the pregnancy warning labels that are going to be appearing within about three years on all alcoholic beverages that are produced in Australia. So I found a diary of mine the other day and I had visited with some others, Nicola Roxon, who was at the time the Minister of Health back in early 2010. And we had a discussion about the need for alcohol warning labels for pregnant women on, on alcohol products. And the government at the time made the decision that this would be a voluntary code. But we discovered after four years, only about 16% of bottles had warning labels on them. After another four years, less than half had labels on them. And furthermore, those labels were very small and difficult to read, often black and white, often difficult to interpret, um, had little information and referred you to a website, sometimes a website sponsored by the alcohol industry. So the short end of this story is that in 2018, at the end, the government decided finally these labels should be mandatory. They charged the Food Standards Australia and New Zealand to come up with an evidence-based label, which they did. There was much objection from the alcohol industry right up to the last minute. And in fact, the vote in March this year was against this label. But in July this year, the Ministers for Health and Agriculture voted for this evidence-based label. And, you know, there was a lot of advocacy, not only from doctors, but from other health professionals, public health professionals, FAIR, the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education coordinated a national group, which no FASD, the National Organisation for FASD, had a very strong role in that. And I think that sort of collaborative national voice from parents, from caregivers, from professionals, from public health people, from clinicians, etc., really it was a very good example of advocacy and achieving an aim against a lot of opposition, I have to say, from a very powerful alcohol industry. So often it's not pleasant and often it's difficult. And as you can see in this case, often it's a very long duration to, to actually achieve an aim. But we're hopeful that these pregnancy warning labels will at least raise awareness in the community about the potential harms from alcohol use in pregnancy. I hope so too. It's quite a triumph for all of us, really, every every Australian, that this is now mandatory, that alcohol industry has to label their products with this label. This red yeah, and, and it's and red and white, isn't it? Red and red, yeah. So it's it's that that's a very important point, Kurt, because it, it's not just any label. It's a label that through review of the medical literature, interviews with experts and consumer input 
was the label that was decided was li- most likely to be affected, effective. It's red, white and black, so it's got a clear border so it stands out, it can mm. be seen. It's got a minimum font size so that it can be read even in a, in a dark pub. It's got a logo which is in red, which is the logo of the pregnant woman holding a glass of wine with the red circle around it and the line across it. And the red is really important because in research we know that red attracts the eye And furthermore, red conveys a sense of warning. And that's why we use red in cigarette labels, red in stop signs, etc. And then, as I said, the black and white distinguishes the label from the background of the bottle. And one of the industry's main objections was to this red label. Mm. They said that it was going to be extremely costly to them. And furthermore, it might damage the reputation of the alcohol industry because it might make people think that alcohol was harmful to the unborn child, which of course it is. So we were absolutely delighted that on that second vote in July this year, you know, this label was passed. It's going to be introduced in three years' time. That's a longer than normal lag period. And that was because of consideration of damage to the alcohol industry through the bushfires and through COVID. Mm. Ironically, you know, if anyone had looked at the data, we know that alcohol sales have boomed mm. during COVID. And not only that, more young mothers and fathers are drinking because they're stuck at home, their employment might be threatened, having to deal with having kids at home, trying to work at home and homeschool. And, you know, there's no end in sight to this pandemic. So we felt that was a false argument. But nevertheless, we've got this three-year period and it will be introduced after that. Can't wait. Moving on to a different question. You played a very significant role in developing the Australian Guide to the Diagnosis of FASD. Could you please tell us what are some of the difficulties in diagnosis? I know you've mentioned stigma as being a barrier to diagnosis. Is there any other particulars that that prevent people from getting a diagnosis? Well, I think there are a lot of practical issues. So first of all, doctors and allied health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists need to know about the diagnosis and how to make it. And the second thing is they need to be willing to make it. So they need to understand that, you know, it's not a stigmatising, doesn't have to be a stigmatising diagnosis, and it can have lots of benefits, which we can come back to later. But from the practical point of view, to make the diagnosis requires several factors. One is we need evidence of prenatal alcohol exposure. And sometimes that's very difficult to get, particularly in older children, children in the justice system, children in adoptive or foster care. Often we we have to go back to the birth records, but sometimes it's not been documented. And particularly in the past, alcohol use was documented very poorly. So that's a barrier. The second thing is that we need to demonstrate that there's significant impairment in brain function across a number of different domains of function. And that might be looking at things like IQ, speech and language, adaptive function, motor function, and all of those functions to evaluate them properly require use of a validated test so that we can get a score and and determine whether a child is average or below average or above average. And it also requires skilled professionals, so a speech pathologist or a psychologist or a an occupational therapist. So ideally, this diagnosis is made with a multidisciplinary team who does a comprehensive assessment of a child's function so that they can determine what that child's strengths are, 
and work on those, but also what their needs are and what therapies they might need. And in Australia, access to multidisciplinary teams looking at neurodevelopmental problems, aside from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, is very limited. There's a big demand and, you know, that's sort of a practical problem. Having said that, we don't need hundreds of multidisciplinary teams who are just looking for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Our role should be to try and train up health professionals across the country so that they can do the elements of the assessment and someone can put it all together and determine whether or not this is likely to be a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So they're the practical problems. What we felt we advocated to government for the need for diagnostic criteria because we felt that from our surveys of health professionals, doctors and others didn't understand what was needed to make the diagnosis or how to approach it. And so we got funding from the federal government and this was led by myself and Professor Carol Bauer from Perth and we developed the Australian Guide to the Diagnosis of FASD, which is largely based on the Canadian Guide and similar to the guide used in New Zealand and the UK. And what it gives is it gives a very clear outline to clinicians of what is required to make the diagnosis so that even if they can't do the whole thing themselves, they know what elements are required and they can refer out for the appropriate investigations. It sounds like it's, it takes a lot of effort to make a diagnosis. Given all that effort, is diagnosis important? What are the benefits? Yeah, well, this is a question that we're often asked. And I mean, on face value, you would think the diagnosis of any condition is important. People who are living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder tell us it is often a relief to get a diagnosis and that it's often helpful, as do parents and teachers. First of all, it, it helps people understand one, their limitations, and to perhaps readjust their expectations of what is possible for that person and what supports are needed. So I think that's a very practical reason for having the diagnosis, but there are other reasons. I mean, obviously a diagnosis and a full assessment that goes with it can be very helpful in allowing families to apply for and obtain NDIS funding. And I think also there's a very important role in making the diagnosis in a child who's living with their biological mother because we know that often women who have an alcohol dependency will continue to drink and may have many affected children. So if that diagnosis can be made in a young child and that mother is identified as still having a problem with alcohol and can be assisted in stopping drinking, then that might prevent the birth of a future siblings with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I think there are many benefits in making making the diagnosis. I agree. Now for the big question, this is the one I ask all my uh, all my people who come on the, this show. Is there more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society to prevent FASD? Well, look, it's, it still amazes me that about a third of women of childbearing age that we interview say they don't know that alcohol causes harm. And furthermore, there's a group of women who know that it causes harm, but they're so committed to drinking alcohol, they don't want to be told not to drink alcohol, they believe it's their right, that they will continue to do so even if they know that it might cause harm. So I think everyone has a role in society at every levels of society in trying to get that message across that we're not asking people to 
give up alcohol forever. We're asking people to give up alcohol if they're planning a pregnancy and during the pregnancy and ideally during breastfeeding because we know that alcohol can cause harm and we know that it's very difficult to predict harm in an individual pregnancy. So, you know, you and I might have a glass of wine and end up with a different blood alcohol level and that blood alcohol level will be transmitted across the placenta into the unborn child and many factors will determine that blood alcohol level. It might be our genetics, it might be our pre-existing illness, our age, our body composition, other, you know, liver or other health issues. So that the message should be very clear that the best option is to avoid alcohol during pregnancy, that women should not drink if they're planning a pregnancy, during the pregnancy and during breastfeeding for the best possible outcome for their child. And I mean, one of the things that as a paediatrician I'm very aware of is when I was pregnant and walking around a major children's hospital, I was aware of the thousands of conditions that a child might have. And yet this is one of the few preventable brain injuries and it's one of the few preventable causes of major birth defects like heart and lung and kidney defects. And really it's a very short time in our lives to give up alcohol. So I guess the message is, the answer to your question is, yes, everyone has a role at every level in their family, in their children, their grandchildren, their relatives, their community, their workplace, to just be starting to to get that message out that we've known about these harms for centuries. We can prevent harm. The effects of alcohol exposure in pregnancy can be lifelong and devastating. And really, in the future, we should be aiming to have a society with as little FASD, if not FASD, uh, as possible. I'd like to thank you, Elizabeth, for coming on our program and chatting to our listeners and giving us such great insight into FASD. Um, honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I couldn't. You know, I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor or a member of the Order of Australia. But, yeah, I'd like to thank you. Thanks very much for for giving us the time. I think the more opportunities we have to get this message out to the general community, the better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. This project is funded by the National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, in collaboration with NoFASD Australia. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.